wonder if it's uh, safe for me to admit in a place like this that I don't think that we've lived through a season where it's more confusing what it means to be the church in the world. In other words, what does it look like for a Christian to go and live as a Christian on the outside of the doors of this church? And rather than kind of barrage with a bunch of statistics, I, I thought I'd just sort of speak personally in saying, I don't know a family who's not had some division in it over discussions about politics. Uh, I, I don't know anyone who's pastoring a church who's not felt the ripples of schism. I've got pastor friends who are actively trying to get out of ministry simply because of what they see going on in their churches. Friendships get lost. And, and the thing that sort of is the most depressing about all of it is that our reputation among the rising generation, the younger people that are coming up, is at an all-time low. And when you ask them about why that's the case, they will say that they believe that central to the mission of American Christianity is allegiance to the Republican Party. Have you been told that you can't imagine someone who could be a Christian and still vote Democrat? I've heard people say that. But I'll say this, this has become a bit of a pet topic for me, this idea of like how to be the church in the world. And I realize that there's a long history in the last hundred years behind where we find ourselves. You can go back into the early parts of the 20th century and find that you really only had two choices when it comes to Protestantism. On the one hand, you had what we might call mainline Protestantism. These were Christians who had um, sort of walked away from what you and I would consider very foundational orthodox truths in general, oftentimes not even really becoming very Christian at all, though they were very socially active. They wanted to see change happen. On the other hand, you had sort of a kind of what we call an ugly fundamentalism uh, that defined real spirituality by a separation from the world. That was all your choices were until the 50s and 60s come along and men like Billy Graham come along and begin to say, no, there's a different way. There's a different, more muscular, more, more manly Christianity where we still hold to the doctrines of faith, but we're here to actually do some really work in the world, to take over the world, to be able to sort of overcome the problems around us. The, the, the best example of this I could think of was from that movie Chariots of Fire, where Eric Little, uh, the great world-class sprinter, is trying to be talked into running in the 1920s Olympics. When his father looks down to me, he says, Eric, what we need today is a muscular Christian. That's the mentality that was fallen into. By the time you get into the 70s and 80s, this marriage of the Christian church to the Republican Party gets formalized through the efforts of guys like Jerry Falwell and the moral majority. This was an explicitly political movement that functioned on this premise that America was founded as a Christian nation and therefore, America was a vital part in God's plan for the world. And I mean in his eschatological plan for the world. Therefore, what we should be doing is doing the best that we can to get Christians elected to places of power so that they can really bring about change from the top down. Now look, I have no interest today in sort of carrying on some discussion of, or a full-scale critique of what has now become known as Christian nationalism. Um, although there, I think there are great reasons why sociologist and religion professor at Notre Dame, Christian Smith, says that this upcoming generation is causing the reason for a non-religious lurch in the decades since the 80s. And when interviewed, they say this is the exact reason why. 
is because of this marriage of these two. But here's the deal. For our purposes, we're looking this semester at the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus' picture of the good life. And what he's saying is, is there is no movement that's worth starting if it doesn't have within it a way in which that movement is to relate to the world around you. What is your purpose in the world, Christian? Are you here to overthrow the world? Are you here to stand against the world? Are you here to serve the world? And does Jesus give us any wisdom for how to think about the world in this regard? So right after he gives his famous Beatitudes, he then launches into this question by using these two wonderful images from everyday life that every one of his people could have related to, salt and light. I do think it's worth noting, Jesus does not get specific about the way in which a Christian is supposed to engage the world, but he does talk about our posture with these two images. So those are my three points this morning. I want to look at the church as light. I want to look at the church as salt. And then I want to consider what it means to be the church in the world. Let's look first of all as the church as salt. Look, verse 13 has sort of a negative and a positive thrust. It says, first of all, Christians, you are salt. But second of all, you become useless when you lose that saltiness. So right out of the gate, Jesus wants his followers to consider what it means to be salty. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is, is what it meant in Jesus' day. Because here's the thing. Salt was not just something that was used to flavor food. Mostly salt in that generation was used to, as a preservative. I didn't even realize this until I started studying it. But apparently, with, with the lack of, of an ice house or electric refrigeration, if you pack meat in salt, it'll preserve it. And so they keep it there so it doesn't decay. Sometimes they would use saline solutions. I also found out that there are places in the world where missionaries have gone to, uh, sort of um, uh, jungle heat specific, who also do the same thing. They'll pack their meat in salt in order to keep it preserved from both heat and from, I'm sure, uh, incessant bugs that would ruin a perfectly good cut. It even turns out that some people will pack dead bodies into salt so they can be shipped to other places for burial. So what's the point of Jesus' image then? What I think he's saying is, is that in this world... There is an inertia for the world to move from order to chaos, from, from, from beauty to ugliness, from, from integration to, to disintegration, from, from freshness to rot. Now realize that as soon as I start talking that way, do you realize how countercultural that is, first of all? We live in a world, I think, where the constant messaging is, if we would just leave the creation alone for long enough, it will bless us and we will flourish within it. Human beings as well are created naturally good, we think, if we would just stay away from some of their bad choices. Is that what we believe? Well, the Bible, I would say, especially if you find yourself this morning on the outside of Christianity looking in, I need to be honest with you that the Bible has a far more pessimistic view of human nature than that. Because the effects of sin do not just infect individuals, they also infect the structures that are created by those sinful people. And the sum effect of it is to create a perpetual decomposition. There's a rot all around us and inside of us. I've spoken of this before in the, in the, in the illustration of a system. You know what a system is? A system is something where the, the components of the thing work together uh, to produce something that couldn't be true when the, when the components were apart. Uh, for instance, a car is a system. 
Lots of different parts working together to make the car go. Well, when I was in high school and I was given this beautiful piece of machinery known as the the Mazda GLC. This was a fine-tuned precision instrument that was given me, right? But somewhere in my upbringing, it just went through the filter, not sure how it happened, that in order for that car to function, it needed this thing that that the researchers and the intelligentsia refer to as oil. I didn't know this. This sort of slipped through the cracks, had no idea, so I didn't put any in it, didn't change it, didn't even know it was supposed to. And over time, took about 18 months or so, that little Mazda GLC began to, let's say, experience alienation and disintegration. It broke down. Look, here's the point. The Bible says that when God places Adam and Eve inside the garden, he puts them into a system so that when they decide that they're going to pull themselves out of alignment with their relationship to God, to some degree, they create alienation in all of the systems around them. Hence the decay. Hence the sort of pulling down. Hence the fact that for the Bible, the second law of thermodynamics is not just a physical truth. It's a spiritual truth. Objects will tend to go from a state of order to disorder unless it's acted upon by an outside force. Jesus is saying is, is that the world is left to itself. It festers, it putrefies, it decays, and makes us rotten with evil. And so therefore, Jesus says, if you are one of my blessed ones, as described in the Beatitudes, your mission in life is to attempt to undo the decay. That is why you're here. You are to be a preservative there because the world around us is as a decaying carcass without us in there. And so therefore, Christians are to be rubbed into the culture to prevent its decomposition. Commentator Kent Hughes says it this way, Christians exert an incalculable influence on society. Their mere presence reduces crime, restrains ethical corruption, promotes honesty, quickens the conscience, and elevates the general moral atmosphere. The presence of these people in the military, in business, in education, in a fraternity or sorority will amazingly elevate the level of living. Even such as their absence will allow unbelievable depths of depravity. Believers, at least salty believers, are the world's preservative. That's it. I wish we had more time to talk about the fact that salt has a positive function of being something that adds savor to life and savor to the world. We oftentimes think that the existence of Christians are there to do nothing but neutralize any fun in the world, but that's not the case. Christians look and say, we are to be the ones who lead the way in celebration of the goodness of God's creation. We delight in the glorious simplicity of a good meal. We love to throw parties that have wonderful food, and and, and as the Proverbs writer says, heart-gladdening good wine. We're the ones who look at the art that's produced around us and search out to see God's fingerprints on every area of life. Even, by the way, when the artist themselves cares nothing for our God. We see his fingerprints every way. Christians are supposed to be savory and delightful. Why? Because we're salt. So therefore, the church is salt is the first thing Jesus says. But secondly, he says the church is light. He says you are the light of the world. Which I think is really interesting because Jesus in John chapter 8 has already proclaimed himself to be the light of the world. Which you get those, and you got to get that relationship together there. Uh, there was an old minister uh, who used to minister at, uh, I think it was 10th Prez in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, named Donald Gray Barnhouse. 
And Barnhouse used to talk about the difference between the sun and the moon. He said the reason why the sun can light the day is because it has light in itself. But the only reason why the moon can provide light at night is because it is reflecting off the sun. So Barnhouse used to say, Barnhouse used to say that the, Jesus functions for us as the sun. But you and I are simply moons. We can only reflect him. But Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount is to simply say, the more you get close to me, the more you own my mission in the world, the more you begin to take on the same properties of light to the world around you. So I thought it would be a fun exercise to look and see what the properties of light are. I came up with five of them. Let's look at them. Number one, light reveals things as they are, does it not? It reveals the truth. When you're in the presence of light, you see the way things actually are. We talk about people who are walking around in a fog. What do we mean? We mean that they don't have any light. They don't see things for what they are. By the way, this is one of the reasons why becoming a Christian is incredibly intimidating. Because it's the first time you see what you really are before God's law. Scary to death. Secondly, though, light also promotes life. Look, that house plant that you have in your house, it's going to die if you don't get it some sunlight. Put it next to a window. That's why we do that, right? So Christians, therefore, are to be those who are doing things that promote life. Remember our discussion from the fall on the sixth commandment, you shall not murder? And we said that that was a positive command to excite life everywhere? And that's more than just being pro-life. That's being pro, uh, pro-everything, pro-race, pro all the people who need to live lives equally, especially those who suffered from oppression and injustice. Thirdly, light also wakes people up. If you've got somebody who's asleep, just shine a big light in their face and they'll wake up. I think that's the reason why over and over again in the Bible you get these examples where people who are living in spiritual deadness are said to be sleepers. Ephesians 5.14, Paul says, Awake, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You know you're functioning as light when your very presence begins to get people to start asking certain questions. You know what I mean by that? They start thinking about things that they never used to puzzle over just because of your stance of who you are as a Christian. Fourth, light is to be strategically placed. Did you hear what Jesus said there in verse 15? He says, look, a light is not helpful unless you put it in a place where it can give light to people around it. And for that reason, Christians spend a fair amount of time thinking through, where are the places? Where is the rot? Where can I go to be, to be a light in those places? It's the reason why people like Foster and Laura Gullett decide that they're going to leave their careers, go learn another language, and live in Italy so that they can be a light to that community. And by the way, we pray for people all the time to be raised up from our congregation. Perhaps God is calling someone here into a vocational ministry position of mission field. But even if it's not a full-time vocation, it's a regular Christian activity all the time to come and search out and be strategic about how we do that. Fifthly and finally, light is what puts everything else in perspective. This is a whole sermon on itself, so I don't have time to dive into it. But when we know Jesus, we know where to put everything else. And again, I'm not talking about avoiding any activity that's not a Bible study. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that once we have the light in Christ, it's supposed to shed light on everything else we see. 
Colossians 1.17, Paul will say, In him, that is in Christ, all things hold together. In other words, once you've found Jesus, you found the unifying factor of everything that you can know. Like I said, it take a long time to unpack that. For our purposes, what I think he means is this, is that by a Christian, by being a Christian, wherever God has called you to serve, you're the one who unveils the dishonesty in the business. You're the one who makes the gossip in the gossip pool look gossipy. Christians are the one who unveil the racism in our neighborhoods. Christians are the one who show the corruption in our politics. Christians are the ones who lay bare the promiscuity at our parties. All the while simply walking in Christ with the beauty of life that shows to those around you. That's our posture to the world. So the church is salt. The church is light. What can we say about all this? What does it mean for us to be the church in the world by way of application? I've got three simple thoughts to leave with you this morning. The first one is this. Being salt and light requires nuance and wisdom. And if you haven't been paying attention, there ain't a lot of that available much these days. In other words, we are in desperate need of a time where people can calmly and rationally talk through difficult, hard situations about which good minds could disagree. Unfortunately, though, we have decided to adopt a medium in social media that, in my opinion, is fraught with danger. Anytime that the worst of me can be projected to as many possible people as can through the world wide web, that's going to be a problem. Not only that, we need to ask ourselves the question, is that a medium whereby people actually change their mind? Or is it more just sort of grandstanding about their particular flag that they want to plant in the ground? Is it helpful for us to be in those places? My point is simply this. We, all, we want for Christians to speak to the world, but in order for us to be salt and light, we probably are not going to move as fast as you want us to because it takes time. It takes listening. And would to God that the church would become known as a place where that kind of thinking happened well. We were free, first of all, to do so without fear of reprisal, what we now call canceling. Because outside of this church, it won't happen. Can we hear, discuss, and say, I don't know. Maybe I can vote Democrat. Maybe I should vote Republican. I don't know. Can we talk about that? Can we have a conversation about it? Secondly, being salt and light takes careful consideration of roles. What do I mean by this? R-O-L-E-S, by the way. What I mean by this is there was a time in church history where there were individuals who thought that if there was something good that was going to be done in the world, that good thing was best funneled through the auspices and oversight of a local church in order to do it. And I simply want to, and I want to be controversial here, but I want to offer to you that perhaps that's not the case. I would make an argument that the church has been given a handful of tools that are really the main tools in our tool belt. There are things like the preaching of the word. We're supposed to be really good at that. There are things like the proper administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And thirdly, it's the development of and recognition of godly men who can create oversight and guidance for the people who are members of her body. That's what we do well. But the further that we get away from that mission, the less expertise we have. 
And it's important to say this because oftentimes we have Christians trying to make statements about things for which are kind of out of our, out of our realm. In other words, we, we don't necessarily have to be the ones who come along and say, we know best how to discover a cure for cancer. Now, we can say that it is objectively a good thing to relieve suffering in the way in which it comes to us through cancer. But I hold myself back when I can't get specific about those things. What do I need? What are the kinds of pronouncements that I'm going to make to our dear mayor, Robin Tannehill? Do I really know exactly how those things are there? I can preach God's word to her. We can invite her to come and partake of the sacraments and even give her what we believe God's mind is on the world. But I exercise a measure of restraint when I cannot be specific that this is in the Bible what I'm constraining people to. Now, the the verse is absolutely true. If I know that it's in the Bible, then woe to me that I don't proclaim it. But somewhere in there is nuance and wisdom lived in dependence upon the Holy Spirit where the church takes up its role. Thirdly and finally, and I'll finish with this, being salt and light is always best done together. We're called as Christians to work as a unit, as a group, as a collective. And look, We're just not being wise if we don't think to ourselves that in the South, we have to ask a question about how we relate to our African-American brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need look no further than our last election to see that the vast majority of non-white evangelicals voted Democrat. And the vast majority of white evangelicals, both Bible-believing, voted Republican. And look, I have no interest in solving that problem. Zero. Love to have a conversation about it, but I've got no interest in solving that problem. I simply want to say, is it healthy for us to consign to sub-Christian status that large a portion of people who are committed to the same scripture and the same gospel you are? And if right now you're hearing something, he's getting all political up there. If you hear that, you've missed me. And you might be compromised yourself and having married the two together. I'm simply saying that in a place like this, can we not at least calm down enough to have a conversation rather than throwing missiles across the way to each other? Hey, the church is to be a colony, a new humanity where people see in our businesses and in our families and in the arts an impetus for the advance of the kingdom of God. What is impetus? An impetus is a spark plug. Something's got to get the engine fired. And so week in and week out, God draws his people together to hear his word, to pray to him and speak to him, to sing worship and praises, to partake of his body and blood so that we are sparked to go out and bring that influence on the world. It's going to be a challenge. Look, it's possible to be salt and light wrongly. We can be unsaltly and we can hide our light. But look, in the midst of it all is our centered belief that when God decided to do this cataclysmic thing of launching the final phase of his redemption of the whole world by bringing his son, he allowed his son to be with us. The theologians would say that he was incarnated among us. He he took on flesh. He came amongst us. And so what that means is, is that the closer you get to this Jesus the more we will be moved to be engaged in the world around us. And not simply as an antagonist, but to be the one who's bringing savor, who's bringing light, 
who's shining light on evil that goes on from all kinds of parties. So here's the deal. We come this morning to a table, and at this table, we are here partaking of the savoriness of God. We are salt because we have savored him here. (laughs) There's a a reaction that we get from him and through him because of his body and blood. So the invitation this morning as we come forward is to realize he's calling us to be salt and light. Let's come forward and do as he says. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, then would you give us the grace to long in that way for what you have given us here at this table. We need guidance. We We need measured walking through what it means. Father, forgive us for the things that we've said about each other. Other well-meaning Christians who, Father, we're on different sides of hard issues. But wherever we stand, whether we find ourselves on the left or on the right, we are all sinners and we are all dependent upon your grace. Would you give us a measure of calm, a measure of wisdom, a way of, of discussing that's healthy and not as the world does. Help us to be salt and light, Lord, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. 